Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 with me. Today we're going to be talking about the importance of repeated words and themes, um, particularly as we see them in Matthew's gospel through something that Jesus repeats here for a third time this morning, but even in general, something for us to be mindful of and aware of in our relationship with others and in our walks with Jesus. There can be great significance in the repetition of words and themes as they're spoken into our life. Um, see how many people can relate to this. If, if one person speaks something one time into your life and it maybe takes you off guard, you might think about it for a day or two, but it probably doesn't have a lot of credence to you. Um, it probably isn't something you take all that seriously, especially if you find yourself inclined to disagree. But if several different people over the course of several different days on different occasions come up to you and speak the same thing into your life, maybe they're identifying a strength or a quality that they see in you, maybe they are identifying a sin or a weakness, maybe they are giving you a certain piece of counsel, and you hear that piece of counsel multiple times, you're more likely to tune in, right? Now, I think that there are occasions in which you might still not tune in. So there are times in which I think we're reluctant to hear words and themes that are repeated in our life, um, even when we hear them from multiple people or in multiple different occasions. And typically, it's because it's something we don't want to hear. And what happens when we hear these repeated words and themes that we don't want to hear is we tend to suppress them. Maybe it's because somebody is, or multiple people are speaking something positive and encouraging into your life, but you're too insecure to give it any credence. And so you quickly dismiss it, even if it's true. Maybe it's because multiple different people speak something to you that you feel is intimidating, and you don't want to hear it because now you feel obligated to have to do something about it. Maybe it's something spoken into your life that's foreboding. And so you dismiss it because you just don't want to hear it. Today, Jesus is going to foretell to his disciples his suffering and his death for the third time. And it's clear based upon their response here and prior to this that they, they don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to hear it. Now, the fruit of their rejection is also on display too. And that fruit isn't that we see them here as nearsighted disciples focused primarily upon them, themselves, their own insecurities, their own neediness, their own desires, rather than on others. And the irony is, the very thing that Jesus just says, the very thing he's about to say that we're going to read, that they think is going to cause their lives to crumble if they were to embrace would actually be to the antidote to their selfishness and to their broken condition. They just can't see it yet. So today we're going to focus on this concept of being nearsighted versus farsighted disciples. And of course, the nearsighted disciples are pictured for us so well by Jesus' 12, they can't seem to get past their primary concern for number one, for themselves. They're short-sighted, the majority of the time they spend focused upon their own desires, their own needs, their own interests, etc. Jesus, on the other hand, models perfectly for us farsighted discipleship. It's almost like he's blind to what's up close, to his own potentially selfish needs and desires, and instead what he sees with crystal clarity is that which is out there. 
He sees the needs of others, and he sees the opportunity to please his heavenly Father, and these are the things that drive him in his earthly pilgrimage. And we see in Jesus' life these rhythms and practices that reveal for us a strategy as to how we too can become farsighted disciples. So let's read Matthew chapter 20, and we'll be in verses 17 to 28 together, and then we'll talk more about how we see that here and throughout Matthew's gospel. Should be on the screen behind me as well if you want to follow along there. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? And she said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First thing that I want to point out in this passage is a detail up front in verse 17 that indirectly related to the rest of what we'll be talking about today, but I think important. And that's this detail in which we're told that Jesus took his 12 disciples aside. And that's not insignificant. This was an intentional act on Jesus' part to teach his disciples and to reinforce something to them he's been saying all along that's really important for them to grasp. Understand that the 12 weren't all that were following Jesus at this point. There was a much larger contingent who would have considered themselves disciples, as well as the crowds that were making their way to Jerusalem for the the pilgrimage, for the Passover. So he pulls these 12 aside, and he tells them something for the third time now that's really important. It's his way of saying, I really need you to hear this. And this isn't just true for these 12 disciples. It's true for any and all of us in this room who understand that we are children of God and we are followers of Christ. He acts this way in your and my life as well. And if we feel that this is absent from our life, if we feel that that characteristic, that attribute of our relationship with God is lacking or missing, perhaps, perhaps it's because we're like the disciples and that God is pulling us aside and repeating words and themes in our life, but we don't want to hear what he has to say. See, the disciples had heard this for the third time from Jesus, but their response each time indicated how much they didn't want to hear it. Back in Matthew 16, Peter, you remember, rebuked Jesus the first time that he shared uh, this future vision of what he would have to do. One chapter later in chapter 17, we're told that they were greatly distressed upon this news. And then three chapters later here in chapter 20, they just ignore it altogether. 
And this time, instead, what they do is they skip over the suffering to glory as James and John come to Jesus and they say, hey, can we sit beside you when we get to heaven, when we get to glory? They don't want to have anything to do with this news that Jesus is sharing with them. Understand, guys, that often the things that God wants to share with you and I when he pulls us aside are things that we don't want to hear, naturally speaking. But also understand that by ignoring them, you may be cutting off from yourself ultimately that which is meant to be life-giving to you. Even if at face value, it feels like death. So be aware of the repeated themes and words spoken into your life through reading the word, through God's people, through circumstances, through the whispers of the Holy Spirit, and don't be quick to dismiss them because they may be intended to be, if they're from God, they definitely are intended to be for your good, even if they feel painful at face value. So Jesus pulls his disciples aside here for a third time to tell them about God's plans for him once again. We read that in verses 18 to 19. I'm going to read those one more time for us. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised again on the third day. First thing I want you to see here is that Jesus this time uses more inclusive language to include his disciples than he ever has before as he shares this news with them. See, in the past, Jesus had said, I, or when he goes up, when the Son of Man goes up to Jerusalem. Here he says, when we go up to Jerusalem. And that language will only continue to become more and more inclusive. We even see it in the very next passage. Right? When James and John are interacting with Jesus about this desire to sit at his right and left hand, and he asks them, can he drink the cup that he's going to have to drink? And they say, we can. And he said, you will. And whether they realize it or not, that cup was a metaphor for the suffering that Jesus would go through and that he was implying that they would have to as well. See, Jesus was preparing them to understand that the journey of those who follow after him, not just the 12, but you and I as well, will mirror ultimately the suffering that he went through, but also the triumph that he would encounter as well. Now, the disciples' response to this instruction here by Jesus as he tells this news of his imminent suffering and death uh, reveals where their hearts were at at this point. And we see it in what takes place next with James and John requesting to be given these positions, which would have been positions of favor and privilege at Jesus' right and left hand in his heavenly kingdom. Now, we know that these are James and John. We're not told here specifically their names. We know that they are, or that this is James and John because they're referred to as the sons of Zebedee, who they were referred to previously as in Matthew's gospel. But also, there's a parallel account of this in Mark's gospel. And it's interesting because in Mark's gospel, the only two we're told in this interaction were James and John. Mark actually portrayed them as the ones who were asking this question of Jesus, and he leaves the detail of their mother out of it, probably because James and John were the ones to have put their mom up to this to begin with, or at the very least, they were complicit with this request. So from Mark's standpoint, he knew this, so he didn't bother to include the detail about James and John's mom because ultimately he knew that this was really revealing something of the heart of James and John themselves. She's almost superfluous in this, in a sense, at least to Mark. And when you really think then about what James and John are requesting and asking of Jesus here, what this request reveals, I mean, really what it betrays about their heart. 
is that they saw themselves as more important to and more significant to Jesus than any of the other disciples. That's the only explanation there could possibly be for such an audacious request here. They're fixated upon themselves. They're really a picture of the antithesis of Jesus here. But this is the default state of the human heart, apart from understanding the cross, which they've just rejected three times, and understanding their deep need for it. On the other hand, the rest of the disciples aren't that much better here. If we really consider their response, they're infuriated by this request from James and John, and it bothered them for the same reasons that James and John asked this of Jesus to begin with, because they all saw themselves as worthy of being more important to Jesus than the rest of the disciples. Just think about it. If you're humble in this moment, you can recognize that's a completely audacious request, but if you're humble, you're like, okay, I wouldn't ask that. You're not going to be infuriated by it. They're all in the same place. It's all about me. It's all about looking out for number one at this point in time. It's a picture-perfect representation of nearsighted discipleship. It's the default state of the human heart to look out for number one. The rest just get the leftovers. And the root of this, the root of nearsighted discipleship as we see it in Jesus' own disciples, is dismissing the cross and all of the cross's implications. Because when we miss Jesus' sacrificial love for us, then we find ourselves too insecure to possibly look outside ourselves and love others. And that's where they were at. Jesus, on the other hand, embodies what far-sighted discipleship looks like for us, this posture of selfless love and a desire to not be served, but to serve and to sacrifice for others. And his life rhythms that we've seen to this point in Matthew and even culminate here in this third retelling of what's to come, his life rhythms reveal to us the strategy for far-sighted discipleship. So this is what I want to talk about in our remaining moments, the postures and practices that will help us to persevere as far-sighted disciples, okay? So there's three things that we see from Jesus. Number one, Jesus abided in the Father's love. I wanted to say Jesus was constantly abiding in the Father's love, but if you don't know what that word abiding means, it means to continue or to remain in something, to steep in it. It already implies that idea of continuing in his Father's love. The second thing we see in Jesus is that he had a resolute focus on his ultimate purpose, the cross and his suffering and serving rather than being served. And then thirdly, he had a constant view to the ultimate end, which for him wasn't suffering. He showed us how you can be both resolutely focused on our calling, his calling, and then in turn ours, and yet also have a constant view to the end that transcends that calling, which is glory which is new life, doesn't end with the suffering. One of these, by the way, is more implied throughout the whole of the gospel, the first one, that Jesus abides with his Father's love, in his Father's love. The other two we see explicitly here in this passage. But the key ingredient that binds all of these together and makes them effective in who we know Jesus to be and in who we can be as his far-sighted followers is that they were an ever-present reality in his heart and mind. And because of that, they informed all that he said and did. The idea here is this, the degree to which we live in light of these truths and keep these things before us is the degree to which we will flourish as far-sighted disciples. So let me try to unpack each of those briefly with you, both as they apply to, and we see them in Jesus, and then as they apply to us. First, Jesus abided in his Father's love. 
Again, this isn't explicit in our passage here, but it's prevalent throughout the Gospels. hear, Hear this. The thing is, it was factually true that God loved his son, Jesus. That was always true. Nothing could ever change that. But the key, again, was the ever-present awareness that Jesus had of this reality. At least seven times in Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus seeking solitude or already in a place of solitude, either explicitly communing with his father or presumably that's what he was doing because we know that's what he was doing on all the other occasions. But the interesting thing is that this detail is usually mentioned incidentally. It isn't the focal point. It's that this is what he happened to be doing when those times of solitude were interrupted by an opportunity for ministry that comes along. And so for these details to be captured as a part of Matthew's narrative, as incidental, means they were happening all the time. This is the work that Jesus was about, first and foremost, communing with and abiding with his Father. Jesus was farsighted first because he abided in his Father's love. Secondly, Jesus was resolutely focused on his ultimate purpose. This is the third time that Jesus has brought up his suffering. And here's what that says to us. Jerusalem was always before him. Literally, the, the, the word Jerusalem is used so regularly throughout Matthew's gospel to indicate Jesus' ultimate destination and to reveal to us that this is what Jesus was focused on. He kept it always before him. Jerusalem, of course, was a literal destination for Jesus, but it was also symbolic of the ultimate expression of Jesus' purpose. It was symbolic of the ultimate suffering that he would undergo for your and my salvation and the salvation of the world. The rest of his life was comprised of these microcosms of that kind of sacrificial serving. But Jerusalem? Jerusalem was the big E on the eye chart at the doctor's, the eye doctor's office, right? It was the main focal point that Jesus kept before him. It was the ultimate fulfillment of his calling. And because he lived with an awareness of his purpose always before him, it prepared him uniquely in his calling in two ways. And I only say uniquely, meaning for those who actually keep that calling before them. Two things that prepared him for. Number one, his suffering wouldn't come to him as a surprise. How often does suffering and pain and inconvenience and struggle and difficulty catch us off guard? But it didn't for Jesus. Evidenced by the fact that multiple times here, within the last few chapters, he continues to say over and over again to his disciples, here's what I'm expecting, here's what you should expect. He counted the cost ahead of time so that when he encountered the cost, it didn't take him by surprise. And then secondly, he knew his sacrifice would be worth every drop of blood that he had to spill. See, when you live with your purpose ever before you, you can't help but to start envision the end result of that. If that's hard for you to comprehend in the context of discipleship, then picture some other aspect of your life you're passionate about, some other goal that you have, whether it's within the context of your job or recreationally, you begin to picture what ultimately you want to be or the outcome of what it is that you're doing, right? In Jesus' case, he had a clear vision for the value of his suffering. He knew that in giving his life as a ransom, it would mean, what does he say? It's, it's, a ransom means freedom, paying the pi- price so that there can be freedom. He knew that that's what it would bring by spilling his own blood for us. And so undoubtedly, I don't think it's too speculative to say that Jesus clung to that thought. Even that he envisioned the reality of what it would be like one day to have his redeemed people alongside of him in the the eternal kingdom. That was a part of what it meant for Jesus to have Jerusalem ever before him. So when we have 
God's ultimate purpose for our lives ever before us in our heart and our mind, then it means that suffering will not take us by surprise. And we will believe wholeheartedly in the value of what it is that we have to give up. Thirdly, Jesus had a constant view to the ultimate end, which was glory. See, he was, he was not only resolutely focused upon his purpose, but he was also resolutely focused upon hope. He saw through the suffering to glory. He always had that in view. Note that every time he foretells his suffering and death, in these three instances, he always ends with resurrection. The disciples miss it. Their reaction indicates that all they're hearing is suffering and death, and that can only be a bad thing. They're missing the glory that Jesus had his eyes on. Death would not have the final say. Jesus looked forward to being raised again to a new life with a new body reunited with his heavenly Father in his eternal kingdom. That was always there in his view. We call this hope, but different from worldly hope. This isn't wishful thinking. It's confidence in an ultimate reality that transcends your current circumstances, your current suffering, your current pain. Jesus had this constantly in view, and no doubt, it fueled him in his sacrificial service on this earth. So now how does that translate to us? All three of these are essential ingredients to far-sighted discipleship, and they probably have a more direct application than you might think to each of us. Um, one of the things I like to do sometimes when I'm thinking through these different paradigms is to kind of sketch it out. So there's a, a whiteboard sketch um, on the screen behind me that may help you kind of solidify what I'm trying to convey here to you this morning about the different attributes that, that, that um, characterize a far-sighted disciple. So I'm just reiterating what I've already said, but there's abiding in God's love. And what abiding in God's love does is it brings security because there's no greater love than the love of God, which is unconditional, that isn't based upon what you do or don't do or when you failed or when you've succeeded, but he loves because he is love, and that brings security. And so we want to abide in that love. It's fuel for everything else he calls us to in this life. The far-sighted disciple also finds him or herself serving sacrificially. This is a part of the having the resolute focus upon the ultimate purpose before us. We know that it's to serve, and we know there's sacrifice and sometimes suffering that comes along with that serving, but it gives us purpose. And then thirdly, the far-sighted disciple needs to keep glory in view. The far-sighted disciple's hope is in that it doesn't end with the suffering and sacrifices we make now, but it ends in glory. It ends in it being all worth it, and that brings perspective. And the only other thing I want you to see here is, I was thinking through this, it's so hard to keep all three of these things at play in following Jesus, right? It's, it's kind of like a whack-a-mole, but the reverse, and trying to keep them all up at the same time. And so if you have even two of these but are missing one of them, then it's going to end in a way that's deficient or destructive in our pilgrimage of following Jesus. If you're only abiding in God's love and know the security that that brings and serving sacrificially and know the purpose that that brings, but you don't have a view to eternity and a view to glory, then what happens, despite these other things, is that you become disillusioned because eventually the cost that you're having to pay now catches up with you because you don't have a hope or at least you're not looking to the hope of eternal life. If we're only serving sacrificially and hoping in glory, then what happens is we may have a sense of purpose and we may have a view to 
the, the ultimate reality that awaits us where all pain and suffering will be wiped away, but we're going to be finding ourselves lonely. Because if we're not cultivating a deep and intimate relationship with God and abiding in his love, there's going to be a God-shaped void in our life that fuel's going to be gone for serving him regardless of what's to come in eternity. And if we're only hoping in glory and abiding in God's love, then what happens is we're content in the wonderful, precious love that we have in God. We're secure in that, and we're waiting for Jesus to return, but that's all we're doing because we've lost sight of our purpose. And so we may feel some of the effects of living in a broken world, but we isolate, and we're just the bunker church or bunker Christians who aren't engaged in our God-given purpose and calling of serving others. So we have to keep all three of these in view. So then it just leads me to ask ourselves the questions this morning. First of all, how are you doing at abiding in God's love for you? While Jesus' example of abiding in his Father's love isn't explicit in this very passage, it is for us. Don't miss Jesus here. Paul in Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrates his love for us precisely and that while we were still sinners, like these disciples here who were so introspective and self-focused, Jesus died for us. Him sharing this with the disciples about his inevitable suffering and death is not meant to be foreboding for them. It was meant to be life-giving. It was meant to showcase for them, I love you. Yeah, you, wise guys. You, screw-ups. It's you that I love, and I'm going to prove that for you by dying for you. And this is always true. God's love for his children never changes, but it only is going to impact you functionally every day if you live with an ever-present awareness to this reality. So how do we do that? One of the places I just want to bring up is John chapter 15. It's a passage I misunderstood for a long time, but it's a passage in which Jesus teaches us what does it mean to and look like to abide in Christ, abide in him. He says this, starting in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, I say I understood this passage wrongly for a long time because what I used to understand this passage to be saying was that if we keep God's commandments, he loves us, and if we stop keeping God's commandments, he no longer loves us. How many of you have read it that way before? It's a really dark way to read this passage that doesn't resonate it doesn't reconcile with the rest of what we read in, God's, in Scripture about God's love. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that if you want to remain intimately aware of what's already true of God's love for you, this happens through doing his will. The fact remains that God loves his children even when they disobey. But the experiential awareness of that fact only happens as we walk hand in hand with him, as we follow in his footsteps, as we keep his commandments. Okay, so what are a couple of ways in which we can do that? We can cultivate an awareness of what his commandments are, what his will is, and close communion with him. Well, first of all, memorizing and meditating on passages of Scripture is a key one that might be lost on some of us because it sounds so cliche, but don't let it be. Here's what I'll say to kind of deepen that. Meditate particularly on passages of Scripture that will fan into flame this reality of the truth of God's love for you. Don't just memorize passages of Scripture that are practical, which are good. The Proverbs, 
or other pa passages of scripture that inform us as how we're to act as Christians, humbly, serving others, etc. Memorize passages of scriptures that are relational, where God speaks over you his unconditional love and his commitment to you that isn't based upon your great obedience, but upon his love. Memorize those passages and abide in his love for you. And then secondly, I would say, give God the first fruits of your time in cultivating that relationship. Here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, before the, the wheat harvest was brought in, the very first thing that they were to do is to take a portion of that harvest to bring it to the temple and to make a, an offer of thanksgiving before they would do anything else. So when it comes to the first fruits of your time, do the same thing. What does it look like for you to give the first and the best priority and quality of time to God and pursuing that intimate relationship and abiding in his love? Maybe you have an hour or two before bedtime the rare commodity of free time during the day, and you choose to take the first portion of that, whatever, a half an hour, and set that aside for seeking him in prayer and in his word. Or maybe you find yourself to be worthless late at night. You can't do anything constructive at that point in time. And so what giving the first fruits of your time looks like is to give him the best of your time. Go to bed early. Get up early. The, the best time for me, the quality time for me is first thing in the morning. Give the first fruits of your time to God and see him pour out his grace upon you and fan into flame that understanding of his great love for you. So that's the first thing. How are you doing in abiding in God's love? Secondly, what's your Jerusalem? What is your Jerusalem? What's God's ultimate purpose for you? On one level, his ultimate purpose for you is that which it is to all Christians. It's universal. It's to lay down our lives so that others can experience life in Christ, to be ambassadors for Christ. But here's what I want to suggest. Do the work of personalizing that for yourself. Who is it primarily whom God has called you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and lay down your life for so they can experience more of Jesus? In what ways specifically has he called you or equipped you or positioned you to do that? Make it personal. The more specific your Jerusalem is, the more compelling your purpose will be as you recall it to mind on a daily and moment-to-moment -moment basis, rather than it just be this nebulous thing that's out there that has no practical application in your life. And then, after you do the work of personalizing it, think it all the way through. What's it gonna cost you? What are the specific examples of sacrifice and even suffering that are gonna come as a result of you pointing others to Jesus in your life in these specific ways. That's what it means to count the cost ahead of time so that you don't find yourself begrudging others or begrudging occasions where sacrifice is required. Secondly, know the value of your sacrifice for others and consider it ahead of time. Have a clear vision of the value of the end result of your sacrificial love. Two ways you can do that. Number one, what has it already meant for others? Where you've counted the costs, you've chosen to set aside your own desires and ambitions and interests to serve someone else, and it's resulted in a blossoming in some way in their life of relationship with Jesus, of freedom from sin, freedom from suffering, Hope, joy, where there was depression before. Meaningful relationship, where there was a sense of loneliness and being alone. I, um, uh, I, I keep an Evernote file. Um, Evernote is an application on, on your computer. And it, 
one of the things I do is I have a file titled encouragement. And any time that I get a, an email or a phone call or a text message or a, a handwritten card or note um, that shares with me something that through my life um, Jesus has done in theirs, I, man, I, I capture that because it's so easy to forget these things, how worth it the cost is of laying down your own life so that others can flourish. And so that's a good and easy way to make sure you don't forget. And the other thing I want to say here is don't assume that the people who've blessed you in your life and pointed you to Jesus and helped you to grow and brought freedom and meaning and purpose and helped you to see God's love for you more and understand the gospel more, don't, don't assume they know that. Tell them. Tell them so that their Jerusalem becomes more vivid and crystal clear before them as to what it is that they're aiming toward and why it's so worth it. And then secondly, not only what has it already meant for others, what could it mean for others? What changes or impact would you like to see in the lives of those who are around you that God has put you in their life so that you can show and demonstrate and proclaim Jesus and the, and the gospel to them? Maybe it's salvation, maybe it's some freedom from sin and bondage that somebody's in you want to see or places of joy and hope that begin to bubble up in the life of somebody who's been down and depressed for a long time. Maybe it's sacrificing so that another person can flourish in the giftedness God has given them. Picture it. Think about what your sacrifices could mean for someone else and keep that picture before you as a part of your Jerusalem. Thirdly and finally, do you think about heaven? Or do you only see your suffering as the end? Or put another way, do you see your suffering and sacrifices in light of glory? This is an area that I've, I've experienced some freedom and some growth over this past year. There have been times that I've struggled with regret, times that I've struggled with missing out on some of the things that have been sacrifices as a result of following after Jesus. But one of the graces this past year for me has been God bringing to mind and impressing over again and over again. There's nothing I could possibly forsake in this life that will not be replaced and then some in the next. Nothing that I might lay down now and find myself still disappointed that I did that when I get to eternity and face to face with Jesus. The suffering, the trials, the losses that we go through aren't necessarily any less painful, but you can endure them with hope because you know what's to come. So do you think about heaven? Do you see your suffering and sacrifices now in light of the glory that's promised to come, that's inevitable? So how are you doing as a far-sighted disciple? How's that going for you? Chances are that at least in one of these areas, maybe more, you find yourself struggling to live that out, to believe in faith. How are you doing at abiding in God's love? Are you resting in the security of God's amazing and unique and otherworldly love for you? Are you living with your Jerusalem before you, of your calling as both a child of God but also an ambassador for him, sacrificially serving those around you, even when it comes at a great cost to yourself? And are you seeing through your trials to the promise of glory that lies beyond? Do you have a view of that, an eternal perspective? Are you cultivating an anticipation of what it means to be recreated, new body, new heavens, new earth, where sin is no more? How are you doing with all that? If you're like me, maybe not great at all times in all those areas. 
but there's grace. Only Jesus was perfectly farsighted in these ways, and so we look to him where we failed, both for forgiveness and also as our example of what it looks like and means to be a farsighted disciple. Let's pray for God's help in that. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God who is faithful to us and perseveres in pursuing us, repeating the same themes again and again when we are dull of heart. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would break through in the places each of us need to see that your words, which may have felt painful, are actually life-giving. Help us to see the cross more fully in all its implications of your love for us and of what you've sacrificed for us to bring us to yourself. And help us to see in Jesus um, a model worth imitating to identify in our lives where is it that we are not in accord with his example? Where do we need to abide in your love? Where do we need to fix our gaze upon our purpose? Where do we need to cultivate a sense of purpose? Where do we need to have a vision for the glory that transcends our current suffering? Please help us in these areas. We know that you will by your grace. You've proven that on the cross. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.